Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We live in a time of uncertainty, complexity. Things are constantly changing, whether it's in business, politics, just life in general. You're always having to constantly adapt. You're having to make decisions when you don't have all the information. But the place where this complexity and uncertainty is at its peak is during combat. Things happen fast, and you have to make decisions that are life or death when you don't have all the information. So how do you do that? And there's possibly insights we can get from the men who make these sorts of decisions and lead other individuals in these sorts of situations and how we can apply it to our own lives. Well, my guest today has done that. His name is Jocko Wilnick. He is a retired Navy SEAL officer, served in Ramadi. And during his time there, he developed a leadership training protocol or program to train other Navy SEAL officers. And he taught men how to lead others during times of intense complexity and uncertainty. And he's written a book on how we can apply those principles from the battlefield to our daily lives in business or just in our personal lives. Uh, So today on the show, Jocko and I discuss some of the principles. One of them is extreme ownership, what that is, why every leader needs to develop that. We discuss how to make decisions when you don't have all the information uh, available to you. And at the end, you're going to, you're going to love this part. We talk about self-discipline and why it's a vital trait for every leader to develop himself, but also be able to develop in the individuals that he is following. Great podcast. If you are a leader in any sort of capacity, you're going to get a lot of information. Make sure you take notes. And after the show, make sure you check out our show notes at aom.is slash Jocko. That's J-O-C-K-O where you can find links to resources and information that we uh, talked about during the show where you can dig deeper into this topic. So without further ado, Jocko Wilnick and Extreme Ownership. Jocko Wilnick, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So you have an impressive resume. You're a successful businessman, run a business consulting firm, uh, also own an MMA gym, uh, but you're also a retired Navy SEAL officer. Can we talk a bit about your curriculum vitae? Because I think it's going to put a lot of our conversation today in context about your book, Extreme Ownership. Sure. As you said, I was in the SEAL teams. I did 20 years in the Navy. I joined the Navy right out of high school and went to went through Navy boot camp, went to SEAL training, got done with that. And then showed up at a SEAL team where I did 20 years. So that was pretty much my whole adult life. Yeah. And then you you had a, you served an interesting time. You served before 9-11. So the, the dead years, right? Yeah. The dry years, no war going on. And, you know, it was, we trained hard and we, we were motivated, but 
um, yeah, there was no war going on. So it was, you, you didn't get that experience f- from combat, you know? So I didn't, I didn't shoot my gun at the enemy until I'd been in the SEAL teams for 13 years, which is a pretty long time to be training. Yeah. And so and then the Afghanistan, Iraq happened. Uh, you were part of a, a unit called Task Unit Bruiser um, and you were a Ramadi. Um, what was your involvement there? Because that was, that was one of the big, you know, you know, flashpoints in the, the, the wars. Yeah, definitely. It was a, it was a tipping point as well. And I was the, uh, I was the commander of tasking a bruiser, which is basically two seal platoons and then a bunch of support p- personnel that support the seal platoon. So, you know, people that do intelligence, people that repair the radios, people that repair the Humvees, people that take care of our weapons, just basic support like that. And it ends up being about a hundred people total in the task unit. And then we were there helping out the the conventional units that were actually in control of Ramadi or trying to fight for control of Ramadi. Those were uh, the 228, which was a reserve unit out of Pennsylvania. And then they got relieved by the 11 AD, the Ready First Brigade, which is an armored armored brigade of soldiers. And there was Marines as well. And when, while you were there, while you were a SEAL, I thought that was interesting you talk about in the book, um, you uh, de- helped develop leadership training for Navy SEAL officers. I'm curious, what was leadership training like in the SEALs before you and I guess Leif? Leif. Was, uh, your, Leif, Leif. Develop your training protocols. Yeah. So when I grew up in the SEAL teams, the the leadership training was really basically OJT, you know, on the job training and guys would show up. And if you were an enlisted guy, as you went through the ranks, you'd learn and you'd watch and you'd get the job and then you'd get the next senior job and then you'd get the next senior job. And so by the time that you got to a a real leadership position, you, you know, you should know what you're doing. And with the officers, they would get counseled and mentored by other officers and by the senior enlisted guys. And while that sometimes works amazingly if you have a super mentor that's really knows what they're doing, but that's not always the case. And so you end up with some folks that don't really know how to lead and they're teaching other people their improper leadership techniques. And so it ends up to be very bad. And, and so we end up with some SEAL platoons that would have great leadership and some SEAL platoons that would have not so great leadership. And so when I came back from that deployment to Ramadi, which was a, a very challenging deployment, it was a tough fight. It was very violent and we had a lot of combat action. When I got back from that deployment, you know, I was really focused on making sure that people knew how to lead because what we saw on the what we saw on the battlefield was that leadership is the most important thing. And I'm not just talking about the guys that were in the leadership positions, like myself as a task unit commander or Leif, who is a platoon commander, but the squad commanders and the fire team leaders and even even the new guys that were just leading their little piece of the mission. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about leadership. It goes throughout the chain of command. And so we wanted to make sure when I got back, we wanted to make sure that the the SEALs that were getting ready to deploy into that hellhole had the same leadership capability. And so that's what we did. We really focused on when I took over. So I took over the training for the West Coast SEAL teams. And this is not the training that you see on TV where guys are carrying boats on their heads and they're doing a bunch of push-ups and they're climbing ropes at an obstacle course. This training is nothing like that. That's the basic SEAL training. And it really has no meaning in terms of becoming an actual SEAL. 
And what, what, what makes you a SEAL, what makes you a SEAL is being good, a good tactician on the battlefield, understanding how to shoot, move, and communicate, knowing small unit maneuver warfare. That's what makes a good SEAL. And so that is the, the course of instruction that I taught was getting SEAL platoons ready for deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. So you basically institutionalized this um, knowledge that was being passed down. Yes, yes. And we took it, we, you know, the, the lessons that I had learned from the Vietnam veterans back when I was a new guy in the 90s, and then I was able to test and confirm in the Battle of Ramadi and really crystallize those lessons learned. And then we just took him and, and started passing him down in a more doctrinalized format so they wouldn't get lost and so that the guys could continue to learn them and pass them on without any hiccups or any loss of knowledge as time goes on. So you spent uh, 20 years as a SEAL. What did you do after your career as a SEAL ended? So when I, I was probably six months from retirement and I had a guy ask me that, that I knew that was the CEO of a company say, Hey, can you come and talk to my executives about leadership? And I said, sure, no problem. And I went up and I actually took one of the, one of the leadership briefs that I would give the young SEAL leaders. I took one of those and I declassified it. So I took the classified missions out and I brought it up and I taught these executives, the principles that I had been teaching the SEAL leaders. And when I got done with this brief, the CEO of the company came up to me and said, Hey, I need you to do this for every, every division I have. And I said, okay, well, okay, I can do that. And then at one of those divisional meetings, the CEO of the parent company was there and he came up to me and said, Hey, I want you to come and talk to all my CEOs of the companies that I own. And I said, okay, great. Well, once I went and did that, there was multiple CEOs that now said, hey, can you come talk to my company? And as this started to grow, it was just word of mouth. It, it took off. And at some point during that, Leif, who I wrote the book with, who was one of the platoon commanders that worked for me in Ramadi, he had left the Navy and he had started doing similar things with some companies. So we just realized that there was a real need out there to get these leadership principles out to the public. And that's what we started doing, and it, it grew very quickly. And that's uh, Echelon Front, right? Yeah, that's the company. It's called Echelon Front. Right. And then besides that, so you got, besides having that awesome fire, iron in the fire, you decided to start an MMA gym as well. I mean, what, how, how, how did that go about? Was it just a passion you had and you just wanted to make an awesome MMA gym? You know, actually, I the MMA gym I had before Echelon Front, I had that before I, before I retired from the Navy. And all it was was there was, you know, I've been training – jujitsu and MMA for a long time. And I was good friends and training partners with a guy named Dean Lister, who's, you know, a former pride fighter and a former UFC fighter and a multiple time world champion in jujitsu and submission gra grappling. And so we had kind of bounced from gym to gym and, you know, none of the gyms at that time really had everything that you would want. You know, there were specific jujitsu gyms, there were specific sort of conditioning, strength and conditioning gyms, and then specific boxing gyms. And so I kind of like things to be more efficient than that. And so, you know, with, a, with another SEAL buddy of mine and with Dean, we got together and said, let's just open a place that has everything that we need, strength and conditioning, you know, jujitsu, boxing, wrestling, Muay Thai. And so that's what we did. We opened this big gym and it's been open for, I don't know, I think about eight years or so. No, it looks impressive. I went to the site to did the virtual tour and it it's, it looks awesome. It is. It's an awesome place. It's a little a little place of jujitsu heaven. <laughs> jujitsu heaven. Okay. So 
all this this career you've had leads up to this uh, this book you wrote, Extreme Ownership. It's about leadership. You co-authored it with Leif, and you highlight the principles you taught other SEAL officers, but also what you've been teaching civilian executives in the business world. Um, and yeah, really one of the best books on leadership I've read. The, the first chapter is on extreme ownership, the title of your book. Can you explain what extreme ownership is and why a leader needs to develop it? Well, you know, we, we named the book Extreme Ownership because we really found that when we looked at not only at leaders, but at teams that were the most successful, we found that the ones that had this attitude of extreme ownership were the ones that did the best. And it's definitely an attitude that I had. It's definitely an attitude that our task unit had, which is we're not going to make excuses. We're not going to cast blame on anybody else. We're going to take responsibility for and, and ownership of everything that's happening in our world. And so that's what extreme ownership is. I'm not going to blame anybody. I'm going to take ownership and I'm going to make things right with all the assets that I have. And when you do that, instead of saying, oh, well, it, it wasn't my fault. It was because we didn't get the support that we needed, or it's because I didn't have the assets that I needed, or it's because I didn't get the training that I needed, or it's because the enemy did something I didn't expect, or I didn't have the right people in place. All those excuses that you make, no, just throw those all out the window, take ownership, and make things happen the way they're supposed to happen. Yeah. And so, I mean, are there any examples from your uh, career as a SEAL where you saw extreme ownership in action by yourself or maybe some other platoon leader you had? Well, the most glaring example is the one that I talk about in the book. And that's really, I think, the best example I could possibly come up with. And that's why I used it in the book, which was where we were on an operation, a very complex operation in a, in a very bad neighborhood, an enemy controlled neighborhood in Southeast Ramadi and a lot of bad things happened. And to make a long story short, there was what's called a blue on blue or a fratricide, which is when friendly forces kill other friendly forces, which as you can imagine is the absolute worst possible thing that can happen in war. And it was, it was one of my SEALs that actually shot and killed a friendly Iraqi soldier. And then there were several more wounded. One of my SEALs were wounded. There was Army and Marine Corps involved in this. It was a, a very bad scenario. And there were a lot of things that had happened, a lot of mistakes that were made that led up to this. And as you can imagine, when something like this happens, it's it's number one, it's devastating for morale and it's, it's a very serious problem. And so when it occurred, you know, I immediately, or, or I was out in the field for the rest of the day, it happened in the early morning. And in the rest of the day, I went through conducting further operations. When I got back, we got shut down from operations by my commanding officer. And he said, Hey, shut down operations. I'm coming out with the investigating officer to see what happened put together a brief so you can tell me what went wrong and, and we can settle it. And so this is, you know, I'm basically thinking, okay, this makes sense that they're going to come out and fire someone for, for this happening, right? Someone, you know, there's a, a friendly soldier has been killed. Uh, another SEAL has been wounded. Other, other friendly soldiers have been wounded. Somebody's got, somebody's got to pay for this, for lack of a better word. And, you know, to my mind, that was just someone's going to get fired. So I started putting together the brief and, you know, listed all the mistakes that would, had been made and mapped it out. And there were people that moved to the wrong position and people that didn't pass radio calls and Iraqi soldiers that went where they weren't supposed to go. And so there was a whole litany of problems that had occurred. And when we got in the, you know, just as we were getting ready to debrief, finally the commanding officer and the investigating officer show up and they're eating lunch and I'm literally finishing up the brief and I still just couldn't 
come to grips with who was actually to blame in this situation. And as I sat there thinking about it, it hit me like a bolt of lightning that I needed to treat this like I treated everything else in my career, which is I am the person that's ultimately responsible for what happens on the battlefield. So we went into the debriefing room. And uh, as I you know, had my whole platoon in there, had the investigating officer, the commanding officer, the, the command master chief. And I mean, I got the guy that's wounded who's, who'd been shot in the face in the back of the room with his face bandaged up. And, you know, I said, all right, whose fault was this? And, you know, I had one guy raise his hand and say, it was my fault. I didn't pass the coordinates on the radio. And I said, no, it wasn't your fault. And then it was another guy raised his hand. He said, you know, I, I didn't positively identify the person that I shot and I should have. It's my fault. And I said, no, it wasn't your fault. And this went on a couple more guys. And finally I said, listen, this wasn't your fault. This wasn't your fault. This wasn't your fault. There's only one person to blame for this. And that's me. I'm the commander and I'm responsible for everything that happens out on the battlefield. And I will tell you this, we will make sure that this never happens again. And that ownership, of course, this, this could have been, you know, my, the end of my career. This could have been, you know, my commanding officer said, yep, okay, it's your fault. You're fired. But instead he realized that I was a guy that was going to take responsibility for what was happening. And there was plenty of other people to blame. I mean, there's plenty of other mistakes to, to, that were made, but I took ownership of their mistakes as well. And, And I don't say just that with, you know, with lip service. I, I truly meant, you know, the guy that didn't pass communications early enough, that's my fault. I didn't make it clear to him that it was important that he passed the communications of what their location was before they moved there or what location they were going to before they got there. I didn't make that clear enough. That's my fault. And I went right on down the line with that belief. And so taking that ownership, it meant that not only was I trying to solve the problem, but now all these guys that work for me, that all felt like, hey, they had contributed to the problem, but they took ownership of their problems and we all took ownership of the problems, the various problems, the various mistakes that had been made, and we made sure that they never happened again. But that attitude, when you have it, it is it is what turns a team into into a high performant, a high performing winning team. Because like I said, if I'm blaming everybody else, well then they're blaming other people too. And if everyone's blaming each other for the things that go wrong, then who's taking responsibility for the problems? And that the answer is nobody. And if no one's taking responsibility for the problems, then who's going to solve the problems? The answer is nobody. Whereas if I'm taking ownership and I say to you, I say, hey, Brett, this was my fault that I didn't make this clear to you. You're going to say, you know what, Jocko? Actually, I should have asked the question because I'm responsible when we get out there for that piece of the mission. I should have asked the question and made sure it was clear. So now you're trying to solve the problem. I'm trying to solve the problem. And now the problem gets solved. And when you end up with a whole team like that, that's when you get, end up with a team that's going to win every time. But it starts with the leader. Like it, it's a trickle-down effect. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's really hard to do, though. I mean, what, what keeps managers from embracing extreme ownership? I mean, how do you check your ego? Because like you said, you could have kept, you know, shifted the blame to someone else to save your career, your reputation. How do you overcome that fear? Well, like you said, I mean, it's, it's all ego. That's the main reason why someone won't say, Hey, this problem in this mission or this situation, this is my fault. I'm the leader. It's my fault. If something goes wrong, I mean, think about if my machine gunner makes a mistake and starts shooting in the wrong direction. Sure. I can blame it on him, but why is he doing that? He's doing it because I didn't make it clear what direction he was supposed to make. Shoot, I didn't make it clear what his field of fire was. I didn't make it clear where, his, where the limits of his field of fire were. So if I failed on all those points, it's actually my fault. But if all I do is blame and blame and blame, 
like I said, no one's going to take ownership for the problems and they're not going to get solved. So you got to get rid of your ego and take the heat like a leader does. You know, you have to maintain your integrity as a leader. And the other piece of this is sometimes people feel, you know, that if I, if I take the blame for it, if I say, hey, Brett, this was my fault, you're going to say, that's right, Jocko, it was your fault. When the reality is that doesn't happen. I mean, you might get a small percentage of people that, that are just basically sociopaths that don't take the blame for anything. But most people that are part of a team are going to look at you and say, hey, you know what? No, it wasn't your fault. It was my fault. I could have stepped up. I could have done a better job. So it, you got to have the confidence in yourself from a leadership perspective that, that when you step up and take ownership of something, people are going to say, you know what? I respect what he's saying. I respect that he's, that he's admitting that it was a mistake and I'm going to help him and I'm going to help the team to do better. So another part of extreme ownership, um, I think there's a lot of, I think it's hard for a lot of managers. Maybe your experience as, a, as an officer and the, the SEALs can provide some insights on how to deal with this. So let's say you take extreme ownership and you, your team's suffering, they're, they're performing not well, and you coach them, you communicate better, you try to solve the problem, but there's still members on your team who aren't up to snuff and it's causing the whole team to suffer. And you come to that decision, like you have to let that person go. Right, you've you've done all you could, but they're still not performing the way they need to be. Um, I mean, that's that's a scary thing for a lot of managers to say. Okay, I got to fire this individual before the good of the team. How do you overcome that fear that a lot of managers might have? Well, first of all, you sort of said it when you said you've done everything you can. So most of the times when I'm working with executives and it comes time to start firing people, one of the reasons that they don't feel comfortable with it is because they realize that they themselves as a leader have failed to invest in that person, coach them, mentor them, get them up to speed, lay out clearly what the expectations are, explain to them what will happen if they don't meet those expectations. So if you're my employee and it's time for me to fire you, you should you should know 100% that it's coming. You should realize that you failed. You should actually step up to me and say, hey, Jocko, I realize that I let you down. I'm sorry, and I, and I know that you're going to have to let me go. That's what you want. Now, the bottom line, you're not going to feel like that every time. And then you have to get to a point where you realize that loyalty to the team trumps loyalty to an individual. And if you continue to keep low performers on your team that are actually dragging the team down, you're, you're, you're failing the whole team. And eventually the whole team is going to fail. So yes, you have to step up. You have to learn how to overcome that, that loyalty that you have to your individuals has got to be overcome by loyalty to the team and you got to take care of the team as a whole. Yeah. And that's probably something you had to deal with a lot as an officer of a, of the seal and the seals. Yeah. When we had guys, which I had multiple guys throughout my career that wouldn't be able to perform their duties as a seal, then I'd let them go. Now this doesn't mean, and I want people to, I don't want to perpetuate the stereotype that everybody that's in the military and every seal is this, you know, high speed, Terminator robot that just is a, a machine that will do whatever you tell it because that's not the case. And you end up with people in your, it's a bell curve, just like any other organization. And so you got some guys that are on the low end. Now there's a difference between a guy that's on a low end and a guy that's going to put the team at risk. 
So when you got a guy at the low, low end, maybe you have to put them in a specific job that they can handle, or maybe you have to have them give them duties that are things that are within their capabilities. They're not going to step up and do some of the more challenging tasks, but there's jobs for them. Even in the SEAL teams, we have jobs that can be done by a, you know, a guy that might not be ready for harder challenges yet. I mean, that's your job as a leader is to make everybody get the best you can out of every single person. But you have to be careful that that idea of taking care of my people and making sure I get the best out of them doesn't cross over into a point where you're keeping a guy along, keeping a guy there that doesn't belong. Yeah, there. you had a great example in the the book about a CEO who had a friend that he was just really loyal to him and he finally had to let him go. And even his friend knew it was coming. Uh, like you just said, like you usually when you're about to get fired, you know it's about to happen because you knew the expectations that were set for you. Yes, and it went off it went off without a hitch. Yeah, and in and in fact, in that case, they actually moved the guy to uh, they dis they discontinued the 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 division that he was in and moved him into another division where he could actually contribute to the company. But yeah, he the 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 boss. You know, if he did, if he did what he wanted to do for the individual relationship, he would have kept him around. But he realized that they were they were bleeding money, and he couldn't do that. Yeah. So there's a principle you talk about in the book, throughout the book, um, from military leadership called commander's intent. Uh, what is that? Is that like is that a mission statement or is it something else? It's similar to a mission statement, but really the highlight of commander's intent is to make sure that the troops know why they're doing what they're doing. What is the end state that they're going for? What is the ultimate goal that they're trying for? And what's so important about that is that is what allows the frontline leaders to make decisions on the specific situations that they might be in. And if they don't have that, if they don't understand why, if they don't understand what direction they're supposed to be heading and what the end state is supposed to look like, they can't make any adjustments out there on the battlefield. And so what do they have to do? They have to call you as the boss and say, hey, there's been this thing that I wasn't expecting. What should I do now? And now we've got lag and we've got slow reaction time. And that's when the enemy will get ahead of you. So commander's intent is what allows what you call in the book, decentralized command. Yeah, it's the most critical piece of decentralized command. Is to, is to make sure that people understand why they're doing what they're doing. And, and one of the examples that I use all the time, a very simple example, is if you and I were going on a mission and I said, hey, Brett, once we get this target secure and we've got the building under control, I want you to go to the rooftop and set security. And you say, okay, Jocko, got it. And then we go on the mission, we take down the building, we got the target secure, you take your team up to the rooftop to set security. Well, when you get up there, you're expecting there to be some, some cover and concealment for your guys. But it turns out that this roof is completely flat. There's nowhere for you to hide, and you're just exposed up there. So what do you do? Well, I told you to go up there and set security, so you sit there. And you got your team up there, and you're all exposed to enemy fire, and the enemy can see you very clearly. It's a horrible situation. So now if we rewind that to back to the planning phase, and I say, hey, Brett, once we get the target secure, I want you to go to the rooftop and set security. And the reason why I want you to do that is I want you to make sure that there's no, there's no enemy coming down this road from the north. And you say, okay, got it, Jocko. Now, same thing happens. We go on the mission. You t we take down the building. The building's secure. You go to the rooftop. There's nowhere for you to hide on the rooftop, nowhere for your team to get cover and concealment on the rooftop. You say, hey, guys, come with me. You bring them down one floor. 
You bring them to this room that you saw on the way up that has north-facing windows. You open up the windows. You put your machine gunners in place. You call me up on the radio, and you say, hey, Jocko, went to the rooftop. There was no cover up there. We moved down to the third floor. I've got eyes on the road. It's covered. We're good to go. The only reason where you were able to make that decision is because you understand, understood the intent of what your mission was. And so it's a very simple way of explaining it, but that's what commander's intent is. And that's why commander's intent is the critical component of decentralized command and control. Wedding season is coming up. And if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, so one of the first things I did, I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And, and what makes, what messes up executives in trying to come up with commander's intent or explaining commander's intent? Well, oftentimes they don't explain it at all. Oftentimes, and it happens in the military and it happens in the civilian world, people are just telling people what to do. And I tell you what to do. It only works until what you do has to change a little bit. And of course, in business, in life, in combat, the, the, the scenario that you plan for is not going to unfold the way you expect. I mean, there are going to be variables that you aren't going to expect that are going to be different what the plan was. And the only way that you can get people to lead in those situations is if they know what the end state is, they know what the goal is, they know what the commander's intent is. That's why it's so critical and so important. But I imagine a lot of executives might think, oh, it's a waste of time, right? Like I had to explain like why they should know why, right? They, I think there's a lot of assuming going on. Uh, well, obviously that's, that's not a very good idea. And one thing that we learned, a pretty tough lesson in Ramadi was when we when we looked at how much and when we talked to the troops especially even when we got back when we realized how little our own guys understood what had been happening on a strategic level while we were in Ramadi it was it was it, we we realized we had let them down and that there were oftentimes where we weren't explaining the why good enough to them. Now, we got it to them for maybe a specific mission, but they didn't really understand the impact of what we were doing overall. And that made it tough, you know, to go on mission after mission after mission when, you know, your friends, you're under a constant threat of getting wounded or killed and you got your friends getting wounded and killed and you're not 100% sure of the why. That's really challenging. Luckily, I just had some some brave, brave souls with me that, went to the, went into the fray day after day. So, you know, Jocko, war is extremely complex. Lots of things going on at the same time, unpredictability. And, you know, business to a certain extent too is also very complex. You've got, you have different organizations working on the same project, working on tasks in parallel. Um, and this adds in a lot of uncertainty into the mix. As a leader who's expected to make decisive, decisive decisions, right? Um, how do you deal with the uncertainty that exists um, out there? Well, for one thing, I mean, obviously, you're never going to know everything. That is not going to happen. You're not going to have all the intelligence that you need. And even if you had every ounce of intelligence that you needed, there's still variables that no one can predict. What the market is going to do, what the enemy is going to do, what the competitors are going to do, what the weather is going to do. So, with all these variables that you have, you have, first of all, you have to know how to detach from the situation. You can't get all emotional. You can't get 
wound up or spun up about what's happening or things that aren't going the way you expect. You have to detach from those emotions and be able to step back and look at the broader picture. And then obviously, uh, you know, you've got to make a decision. Now there's a great, a great technique. And I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's called the OODA loop. I don't even think we put it in the book, but it's, I've I've written about the OODA loop in extent. I, I love John Boyd. Yeah. So John Boyd, famous air force, uh, pilot who is pretty much respected and known as the best pilot ever in in modern air force so he he came up with this thing the OODA loop observe orient decide and act and really that's what you need to do when things are complex and things are unfolding in front of you and i always i always say that you know there's there's very few decisions that you need to make 100% at the moment of course they do exist and decisions like that you know what you have to do you have to look at what you have you have to make a decision you have to go that that's that's it but most decisions can be slowed down somewhat. You can make an an iterative decision that's smaller to see how it affects the situation and how the situation continues to unfold. So you observe what's happening, you orient yourself to it, you decide what you're going to do, you act, but then you reboot and you do it again. Observe how that that worked, observe how that happened, and then decide what you're going to do and then act again. So try and chunk those decisions down a little bit. What can you do? For instance, um, we we need to attack this building. Okay. Do I need to attack the building a hundred percent right now? Maybe I start off by moving troops in vicinity of the building. Then maybe I get snipers to move a little bit closer and get eyes on. Then maybe I stage the assault force in a position where they can assault it quickly. Now I've got everything set, but I still haven't pulled the trigger. Now I can say, okay, now we've observed the person that we're, we're actually looking for in the target building, now I can pull the trigger and we can execute. So when, when I got asked 20 hours ago, hey, or, or I had to make a decision to hit the target, I didn't really have to make the decision there. What I did do was put my forces in the correct position, get more intelligence, get, stage my people in the right spot, let them understand the situation better. So that way, when the, when the actual time for the decision comes up, I can pull the trigger and go, or oh, by the way, we could have observed that place for 48 hours. We never see the person that we're actually looking for. Let the guys fade away. We come back and it's no problem. We haven't burned the target. So I think you sometimes have to gradiate and modulate your decision-making process uh, to just slow it down a little bit and see what you can do to stage and be ready for an, uh, an expected or unknown outcome. Like I said, there are times where you just have to make a decision. You know, oh, if we're getting attacked right now, we're going to flank them. There, my decision's been made. Punch right and flank them. Done. That's, that's very easy. <laughs> Um, so Jock, I think a lot of people have this idea of Navy SEALs being the sort of, I don't know, work off the fly, the renegades, et cetera, et cetera. But one thing I was surprised in the book is the amount of planning that goes on for these missions. Uh, can you talk about sort of the checklist you went through as an officer when you planned even some of the simplest of missions? Uh, what sort of planning did you do to, to get ready for that? Well, we absolutely do all the planning that we possibly can. And what's interesting is if you ask me how long it takes to plan and how, or if you ask me how much time we spent planning, there's some missions that we planned for 15 minutes because 
as I just as we just talked about, sometimes you get a time sensitive target and you just don't have time to do detailed planning. Other missions we plan for weeks because we find out where the target is, we find out what the mission is, and so we have all this time to plan and prepare. So we absolutely would in those time period, whether it was 15 minutes or 15 days, we would still do our best to go through a standard checklist of what we had to assess, the intelligence we had to gather, the questions that we had, then how we were going to execute the mission phase by phase. And we could do this in a very rapid manner, or we could do it in a very deliberate and slow manner. And we basically used one of the oldest uh, planning methodologies in, in the military, which is SMEAC, and it's an acronym that stands for Situation, Mission, Enemy, Admin and Logistics, and Command and Signal. It just kind of covers the bases of, of what you're doing. And sorry, I said enemy, and I meant execution. But it just kind of covers the what you're going to do, you know, who you're facing, what you're trying to take care of, what assets you have, who's going to support you, how you're going to communicate to each other, who's in charge of the various aspects. It's a very simple checklist. And when we work with, when we work with civilian companies, what we do is we don't impose this checklist on them, but we use it as a baseline for them to formulate how they're going to do their repetitive planning activities. For instance, you know, we have, we'll have a, a, let's say a retail company that's going to be putting retail outlets in various places and they're expanding their market. Okay, let's look at how we're going to do that planning. You know, first you have to identify a location, you have to you have to check the demographics of the location. We so we go through this whole thing, then we have to figure out what the leases are going to be. So they come up with their own checklist, but once they've done that, now when they move and they do multiple areas, they've got a baseline to go off of and they don't miss steps. And that's the main thing that we do with our checklists. It's we put them in place so that we don't miss steps. You know, Eisenhower has that phrase like planning, plans are useless, but planning is everything. I guess is that, that, idea, <laughs> right? that idea that once you, know, you meet the enemy, like the plans oftentimes go out the door. But I mean, what, is, what is the benefit of planning, even if you don't end up following the plan to the T when you actually have contact with the enemy? Well, first of all, we would operate, much of our plan would be in the form of standard operating procedures. So we would have certain standard operating procedures and all we would have to do is link together various standard operating procedures and then there is our plan. Now, what's beautiful about standard operating procedures is if if something that you didn't expect happens, you can just quickly alter and go to a different standard operating procedure and then and then adapt from there. So the the planning and the rehearsal, it allows you to know what you're planning to do. It gives you a line to deviate from. It gives you an organizational structure. And and one thing I would always say is make your organizational structure as flexible as possible. And that way, when you get out on the battlefield and you run into something that you don't expect, you can very quickly flex. But again, it gives you a baseline to deviate from, which is very important. If you go out there with no starting point, with no datum from which to begin, you're going to be in a world of hurt once the complexities hit you. Right. I guess that's like the orient phase of the OODA loop. You're orienting yourself and allows you to make decisions on the fly afterwards. Yes. Right. Uh, so you you have this idea about leading down the chain of command, which I think we all understand. It's like the hierarchy you do what the boss says. But then you say that a, a leader needs to know how to lead up the chain of command. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, that the idea of extreme ownership, which I already discussed about how I was taking the blame for mistakes that my guys made 
And if my machine gunner shot the wrong way, it was my fault. Well, it goes the same way up the chain of command. So in other words, if my boss isn't giving me the support that I need, he's not giving me the training that I need, he's not giving me the equipment that I need, most people just want to blame their boss. I don't. When that happens, I blame myself. That means I didn't educate my boss. It means I didn't influence my boss. It means that I didn't explain to him in a method that he could clearly understand what it was that I needed. And so, because you've got to remember that my boss and me in combat or in business, we're going to have the same ultimate goal is going to be aligned. The same ultimate goal is going to be aligned. So, you know, in war, we're going to kill bad guys and, and win the war. That's the goal. And in business, you know, we're going to, we're going to be profitable. We're going to have good customer service and we're going to be profitable. Whatever those goals might be, they're going to be aligned. And so if I present something to my boss that's going to help us kill bad guys and win the war, well, then why would my boss not give it to me? The only reason he wouldn't give it to me is if I didn't explain it to him well enough, or he didn't, I didn't make it clear, or I didn't jump through the little bureaucratic hoops that I'm supposed to jump through in order to get what I need. But for me just to say, oh, the boss didn't give it to us, that's why we failed the mission, is wrong. Now, the caveat is, of course, this doesn't mean that you're always going to get what you want from the boss. Because you know, if I ask my boss for a good example, and this, this would happen on a fairly regular basis... If I say, hey, boss, I need air support for tonight. I need a dedicated multiple aircraft overhead to help us out if we get in trouble. Now, that's going to help us kill bad guys and win the war. My boss says, you can't have it. I say, well, wait a second, boss. Why can't I have it? He says, here's what's going on. You guys are going to be very close to your base tonight. I got two other platoons. They're going out far away from their base. They're actually going into worse areas. I'm giving them the aircraft that we had because we have limited, limited assets. Okay, now can I argue with that? No, that actually makes sense. And also now when my guys, when I go to my guys and I say, hey, listen, guys, we have no air support for tonight. I asked the boss, they couldn't give it to us. Here's why. There's other platoons that are going out into a worse area further away from base. They're getting the air support. Now my guys understand why the boss is making this decision. Because if all, of, all I tell my guys is, hey, we're not getting air support tonight. What, is the, what do the troopers think? The troops say, well, they don't understand. They're not helping us. We're not getting the support that we need. The boss doesn't get it. And that, that starts to formulate a bad team, <laughs> a team that doesn't believe that we're all working together to accomplish the mission. So when you ask your boss why, and you have that explanation for your troops, then your guys go, okay, got it. I didn't realize there was other missions going on tonight that needed the air support more than us. We'll deal with it. So there's a huge part that it, that that role plays of leading up the chain of command and making sure that you're taking ownership of your boss as well as your troops. I mean, I, that, that whole idea of chain, you know going up the chain of command um, was awesome because I think a lot of times, particularly in the business world, people forget that their boss is on the same side as them. And they think if their boss isn't cooperating with them, like, well, they just, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about the, the, the objectives we're trying to fulfill. But it's like, no. He cares. He's on the same team as you. Like you said, you just need to do a better job. Take ownership of it and explain to him why you actually need this thing. That's it. That's exactly it. Um, so we, you have this section on discipline and you have this phrase, discipline equals freedom. Um, and for a lot of people, that's like, no, discipline is like you have to do stuff you don't want to do. It means you have to wake up early when you don't want to. It means exercising when you don't want to, and you'd rather just sit around and watch TV. 
So how does discipline equal freedom? Let's just start with the example that you just gave. Uh, You have to wake up early even though you don't want to. Well, people want to have more free time, right? They want to have the freedom of time to do what they want. Well, how are you going to get more free time? The answer is very simple. You have to have discipline. You have to have a disciplined time management schedule. You have to have the discipline to get up and get out of bed in the morning. You gain yourself. I tell you what, too. Morning hours are worth extra. They're like longer than regular hours that are during the day because no one's bothering you. No one's getting in your way. No one's talking to you. You just do what you need to do. So when you get up very early in the morning, you can accomplish a lot more. And that actually, that discipline of waking up early actually gives you more freedom in the rest of the day and the rest of the week because you get more done. And that is a perfect example of how discipline equals freedom. Same thing with working out. You know, we want to be healthy. We want to be free from, you know, being sick and, and coming down with illnesses and we want to be free from injury. Well, how do you maintain health? You have to have the discipline to eat right. You have to have the discipline to work out. So you stay flexible, you stay strong, you stay healthy. And so those are two really easy examples of how discipline equals freedom. So is this, yeah, waking up early? I see this on Instagram all the time. People showing pictures of their watches at 4.30 in the morning. And I think I think you're responsible for this. I, this I, up I, think, I think I might be. <laughs> up before the enemy. Is that, you wake up at 4.30 in the morning? Yes. That's nuts. And so what do you do with, the, and with all your free time that you have in the morning? I wake up. I have a great workout. I do a little bit of work in the morning. Normally work that takes a certain type of uh, thought process. I do some of that work in the morning before the the world starts, and you know by the time the the family's awake, I'm I'm way ahead. <laughs> what and time do you go to bed at night? I go to bed around eleven. Eleven to four. There's how many hours of sleep? That's like five. I five usually try for five and a half hours. Five and a half hours is it works for me, and I know that doesn't work for everybody. And some people need more sleep, some people need less sleep. And you know, I always like to point out that that everyone's all excited because I'm getting up at 4:30. But there's there's people that are getting up, or there's single moms out there that are working two jobs that are getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go to the diner to open it up and start waiting tables. I mean, this is just. I'm just a guy that, that wakes up early and I actually have the luxury of waking up early. You know, a lot of people aren't in that situation, but there's also people that could be waking up early and doing a lot more than they're doing. And they, instead, unfortunately, they, they let the laziness win out. They hit that snooze button and they end up not doing what they should be doing. Um, I mean, how do you develop this? I can see how it'd be beneficial for a leader to develop self-discipline in his life. How do you, as a leader, help create a culture of discipline in your organization? Well, it comes with the same mindset. First of all, be disciplined yourself. There's nothing sadder than a, a boss that you know is, is encouraging people to come in early and they're not showing up early themselves. Uh, but, but on top of that, you know, this idea of standard operating procedures, of putting procedures in place, of having process in place that they can follow. Now, again, as you said earlier, this might make people think that we're going to be more restricted as a team because we've got these standard operating procedures in place that we're going to be constrained by them, but actually the opposite is true. 
And if you would see my SEAL platoons or my SEAL task units, we were very highly disciplined and had standard operating procedures for everything, for the way we got into vehicles, the way we got out of vehicles, the way we got into buildings, the way we got out of buildings, the way we, the way we talked on the radio. We had a standard operating procedure for everything. And this didn't make us more constrained. It gave us all kinds of freedom because we were so disciplined that if I needed a building taken down, I could look at you if you were my task unit, Brett, and I'd say, hey, Brett, go take down that building over there. And you would just go hit it. You didn't have to tell me how you were going to do it. You didn't have to tell me who you were going to take with you. You didn't have to tell me what methodology you were going to use. You didn't have to tell me what you were going to do if you got into a firefight. You knew all those things. And I knew all those things. And your troops knew all those things. So we had complete freedom to execute, execute, execute. And I could send you in that building, you in another building, you in another building, and, it, and we could do it very quickly and rapidly because we were highly disciplined. So the discipline that we had as an organization actually gives you more freedom. So it's the paradox of discipline. Indeed it is. Gives you more freedom. All right. One of those great paradoxes along with Zeno's paradox. All right. Jocko, besides um, the work you're doing with your business consulting, the gym, you also got a podcast, a new one out. It's been out. How long has the podcast been out? The first one came out uh, just before Christmas, December, 2015. But it's super popular. It's been well-received. What kind of topics are you hitting on on the podcast? And like, why did you decide to start a podcast? Well, I... I've always been into, even pre-podcast, I, when I was a kid, I listened to radio shows. And I was always like that media medium of people, just voices coming into your brain. I always thought that that was awesome. And so when podcasts came out, I started listening to podcasts and I was got really into, you know, a few podcasts that I got really into. And then as the book was getting ready to come out, I had a friend of a friend who was friends with Tim Ferriss and we got linked up and I ended up going on Tim's podcast. And when I got, when we got done and he pressed stop on the recorder, he, he said, you know, you need to have your own podcast. And I didn't, you know, I, I thought it, it sounded great, but uh, the book was about to be released when the book came out that really went pretty Richter. And so we had to deal with all that. And then I did ended up doing another podcast with Joe Rogan, who I kind of knew through the years from being at UFCs and cornering fighters. So I, I'd seen him around for many years, but we never were, you know, we, we would recognize each other, but wouldn't be, we weren't considered friends or anything, but he, he liked the Tim Ferriss podcast that I did. So I went on his podcast, really cool experience. And in the middle of that podcast, he just said, you need to have your own podcast. And at the end, he said, he called me out and said, are you going to do it? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. And so then once I said that, the the Twitter, a bunch of people on Twitter and social media hit me up and said, yeah, do a podcast. So I had a buddy who knew how to do podcasts, from, who's a buddy from jujitsu. So I asked him, hey, can we do a podcast? And he said, yeah, that's Echo Charles, the co-host of the podcast. And we recorded a podcast. And yeah, like you said, I mean, I was... Uh, it was really cool how well it was received and and how much feedback we're getting on it. And as as far as what we, we talk about, I mean, it's about, it's about leadership. It's about fighting. It's about business. It's about death. It's about war. It's about good and evil and light and dark. And I mean, really, I think what it's about is it's about life. Well, Jocko, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Get after it.
My guest today was Jocko Wilnick. He's the author of the book, Extreme Ownership. And you can find that on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. And really, if you're a leader or in a position of leadership, go check it out. One of the best books on leadership I've come across. And also make sure to check out his podcast, The Jocko Podcast. Just search for it. It's on iTunes and Stitcher, wherever else you can listen to a podcast. A lot of great insights about leadership, business, fitness, discipline, life, even combat. You'll get some insights there. And also make sure to check out the show notes after you listen to the show at aom.is slash Jocko, where you'll find links to resources and stuff we mentioned throughout the show. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this show and have gotten something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or wherever wherever else you listen to the podcast. It helps out a lot. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.